This is for the Baroque and Rococo lecture. And the images in the PDF PowerPoint correspond to the audio, so you can follow along by looking at the images. And as always, we are situating art history in the time and space that they occurred and how we can be familiar with them today. So we're asking the questions of what our aim is as a class. And as always, we wanna position these histories in time and space. We want to connect images with their political, social, and cultural context. We want to understand the historical importance toward our contemporary world and relating the historical importance to what is significant today. I think that this not only makes it more meaningful, but it also helps us remember this information long-term so that it can go beyond just a semester of your life and you can take away some significant information about art history and doing so in a deepened way with political, social, and cultural context too. The Baroque period followed Renaissance art and mannerism and preceded the Rococo period, which we will talk about second. This is also, Rococo is also referred to as late Baroque. And it also precedes neoclassical styles, which we will do later on as well, but in a different lecture, a different week. And Baroque is a period of highly ornate and often really extravagant style of architecture, music, painting, sculpture, even dance and other arts like literature that really flourished in Europe from the early 17th century until about the mid 18th century. And it can be in terms of words other than ornate and extravagant, there's a sense of opulence, a sense of wealth and luxury, grandeur. Um, and it's during the period of the reign, in terms of France at least, of Louis XIV or Louis the Fourteenth. And its roots are in Rome, but it's spread in other parts of Europe like France, Spain, Austria. And the reason why I point out Louis XIV is because he is, we're going to be looking at a painting of him, but also he is um, a good transition into Rococo and then neo, our, our conversations about neoclassicism later in the semester so that we can understand the political significance of the revolution. And it's partly responding to this legacy that this legacy of opulence and spending a lot of money within the monarchy that Louis XIV and Louis the Fifteenth, um, and as well as Louis the Sixteenth, follow. And it had some similarities in terms of the style, in terms of the 
formal analysis, which we will talk a lot about now, with the Renaissance. And I didn't go over the Renaissance in a, in a week because we just haven't been able to fit all the interesting things that I wanted to talk to you guys about in terms of a survey course. Um, but the Renaissance will still appear in different art movements because art movements in history are always influenced by the past. Um, just like us, we're influenced by our pasts. And so artists were using a sense of realism, meaning naturalism, that they were interested in making things look naturalistic. That continues. And the rich colors as well. The Renaissance invited this deep attention to tone and um, putting different tones together in a really dynamic way. And there was a lot of depth to, for example, a painting. Um, the colors are very deep and rich and um, make the entire canvas really come alive. And religious or mythological subject matter continues to be a theme. Um, and architects during this time are working in styles that really favor balance and symmetry. And this comes from ideas of the Renaissance that, for example, Leonardo da Vinci came up with and other artists that were also interested in mathematics and science, geometry. So things like symmetry and balance um, have a formalist or visual interest in the Baroque period as well. And I just am going to be really repetitive about naturalism versus realism. Naturalism is often equated with realism, but in terms of art history, it was only defined some decades later, which we'll talk about um, in one of our weeks. I can't remember the date exactly. Later on in the semester though. And it realism was during really its heyday was like 1870s and 80s and was more concerned than the older movement, meaning naturalism, with this hyper-real composition. Um, it was more interested in depicting the real politics or social realities of the time. Naturalism is not so much interested in capturing, for example, a realist painter like Courbet is really interested in showing the dirt on the peasant's clothes, on the worker's clothes, showing that reality, that rugged reality. Naturalism isn't quite there yet in terms of subject and content and form all aligning. Naturalism is hyper-real visual compositions, precision, um, fusing the technique and effects of romanticist painting with the idea of, okay, I want this to match reality as much as possible. But there's still an interest in beauty and drama um, that naturalism is, yeah, it's not quite historically in the realm of realism yet in terms of art history. 
So naturalism comes first, and then in the mid-late 19th century, we will get into realism. Con you know, contoured lines, crisp modeling of the body in terms of sculpture and painting are present and traits of naturalism. And I've given you a few images of Michelangelo's David, which is on the right in this one slide. And then on the left is Michelangelo's, it's a cropped um, painting, but the entire ceiling of the Sistine Chapel was done by Michelangelo, which you might know, in 1508 to 1512. And you'll notice that the Renaissance bodies um, are very relaxed. They kind of look, you know, David's sort of sitting in the, or I'm sorry, standing in this really relaxed position. You can even get up if you'd like and, and mimic the position of how you would stand when you're relaxed. And you might jut one knee out and have your other leg, you know, not perfectly straight, but straighter and tilt your hip a bit. And this is called, there's an art historical term, but we didn't do the Renaissance, so you don't have to know it. But if you're curious, it's called contraposto. I'll add that to our website. And that's this relaxed yet active physicality of the posture. However, in Baroque, we get a more dramatic formalist interpretation of the body. So I have, I have um, just relaxed Renaissance to make you, and then boisterous Baroque, just to kind of put some alliteration into our memories so we know that the two are really differentiated. And so we have um, Bernini, and Bernini is a sculptor, one of the great innovators of the Baroque period. He was also an architect and painter, and he was also a stage designer and writer. So many artists of this period continued in that Renaissance tradition of playing many roles, so many different disciplines and, um, you know, it could be sculpting, but it could also be writing, architecture, paint, um, dance. Artists were very, they wore many different hats and that wasn't uncommon. Um, you've heard this from the Renaissance man. So that kind of continues throughout history a bit. And his major patrons, Bernini, were cardinals and popes who admired his expressive interpretations of religious subjects and this dramatic use of forms. So the, really the form of the body is much more dramatic than we see with the Renaissance. You can see this is David again, and his body is twisting and contorting to move the slingshot right at Goliath, as the myth says. So, so this is a, it's a big contrast between the relaxed David and the boisterous Baroque David, who is in action, there's drama in the moment. You can see his facial expression is much less relaxed. His, his mouth is kind of tight and his jaw and he's furrowing his eyebrows. So these are all different effects uh, that the Baroque period was interested in visualizing through sculpture. Bernini's 
David, his lower body is covered with a drape to maintain the sense of decorum, but rather than showing him frozen in action, his stance implies a sequence of poses. So if you walk around the sculpture, there's this energetic movement that's present, um, even with this, the wrapping of the drape, that the drape is kind of moving along with him. And it fulfills the idea of the heroic male nude that, um, you know, whereas Michael Michelangelo's David is kind of waiting maybe for the main event, um, this David, Bernini's David, is really in the face-off with Goliath. He's not waiting around. He's in it. And individuality in the Baroque period becomes even more important. So it does it starts to become important in terms of giving us that naturalist style, naturalistic style in the Renaissance. But Michelangelo gave us a sculpture of a man who is powerful, heroic, and perhaps even intellectual in the sense that maybe he's planning an attack. He's waiting there in this contraposto position. And this view would have been very in line with the artist's humanistic view of the high Renaissance ideal. But for the Baroque, he is he is David in this moment, right? This is what he's known for, for defeating Goliath. And so we really see David as David, as we know him in history, come through by seeing him in this energetic movement together culminated in this statue. Okay, so let's move on. Another key word in art history, chiaroscuro. This is a technique that is employed in the visual arts to represent light and shadow as they define objects, three-dimensional, um, giving them more life, in a sense, more naturalism to a painting. And 17th century, so a bit of history behind this, the growth of nation states and monarchies made way for portraits to, and also architecture, these very monumental, impressive buildings are representations of power, of empire, of monarchy. And the 17th century saw a diminishment of Spain's power because they were threatened by the Dutch Republic that was gaining traction at the time. And at this moment, um, Protestant England was, was powerful. And Velasquez, who I have, I love this painting, uh, the water carrier of Seville from 1619, the 17th century. Um, we have Velasquez and he's kind of considered the not greatest painter, I, I don't like that kind of language, but he's definitely a pioneer of the Spanish golden age in particular. And he painted, religious pictures and genre pictures 
emphasizing this chiaroscuro, so emphasizing naturalism. Um, but he was also made the official painter to King Philip IV. And so he also, because of this role, mostly painted portraits um, during this period because, as I said, this was a way for the monarchs to represent their power. Their power is kind of vilified through these forms of art. But in this one, this painting, the water jug painting, a middle-aged man, we don't really know who he is. It's sort of anonymous. Um, and then there's also a figure who is barely perceptible in the background, kind of interesting. And he's, the man is drinking from a jug, but the humble figure of a water seller is rendered with such attention and dignity and the jug as well, it's given this, the utmost attention with all of that detail. And he, Velasquez had these, had the ability to really take his observational power and put it into the surfaces and texture of his paintings. And I think that one of the most um, kind of iconic ways to see this is that detailed part of the water jug where you can see the water coming down, the droplets forming on the vessel's surface um, to suggest that condensation is happening. And so the contrast of light and dark with these unidealized figures of these regular figures, you know, it's not a king, it's not a, any kind of monarch, are placed close to the foreground. And it it's sort of this everyday scene, but it became a very important painting for his body of work. And, you know, the subject matter could prefer to dignity of the lower classes, which is significant for someone who was a court painter. But, you know, I'll leave that up to you. But I, I do love this painting, and I think it shows the chiaroscuro really, really well. And you'll see that appear, and I ch sort of challenge you to look out for that and go, oh, that's chiaroscuro. I can see that big contrast in naturalism um, of light and dark, of shadow and light beaming through. I also have included this slide where to show you this one point perspective or the Renaissance perspective and Leonardo invented this. All it is is, um, well, not all it is, but it, what it is is it involves all the lines in the painting converge in one place, which is known as the vanishing point. And this is where our eye is supposed to be drawn and there's usually a sense of dimension, a sense of depth in the painting, but um, you'll never sort of be led astray. Our last lecture, when we talk about cubism, we'll get into multi-perspectival works where your eye has no sense of beginning or end in terms of how you look at the painting. Um, but in the Baroque, still holding on to that Renaissance ideal,
And then the painting of Velasquez's Venus was completed probably during the artist's visit to Italy. And the work depicts the goddess Venus in this sensual pose, lying on a bed and looking into a mirror held by the Roman god of physical love, Venus, um, her son Cupid. So Venus is the goddess lying there, and then her son Cupid's holding the mirror. The interesting thing about that I'll say about this painting is Velasquez loved to trick the eye, to play with proportions. And there's a few different examples of this. Um, but here, in this painting, her reflection in the mirror, something is off about it. And I will leave that to you to sort of debate in your mind, okay, what is off about it? But um, something is intentionally off about that. We'll discuss it in class. But numerous works from the ancient to other painters in the Baroque period have been cited as sources of inspiration for Velasquez. So we know that he is inspired by the past, but he's also adding his own flavor in a way. The nude Venuses of the Italian painters, Titian's Venus of Urbino, this is a very, very famous painting. Um, this is a clear precedent for Velasquez. He's combining two established poses for Venus, the recumbent on a couch where she's reclining, reclining on the couch um, or bed and gazing at a mirror, gazing at her own reflection. Many different types of art became popular during the Dutch Baroque period. And this begins on the slide where I have two paintings and it says group portraits. So what, what types of art became popular during this period? Well, genre paintings or small paintings of everyday life were exceptionally popular with a middle class clientele, as were still lives, landscapes, and prints. The majority of these kinds of art were both affordable and small enough so they could be easily purchased and displayed within your average household, average middle class household. Larger and more compositionally complicated were the group portraiture and this became popular in Holland during the 17th century and was a mode of painting that was often placed in a public space so that the image could promote a particular group of people or organization. And we have a great example of Rembrandt. So Rembrandt. Rembrandt was, when he created this painting, I've included Nightwatch. Very, 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 very famous painting. He was at the height of his career and it was commissioned, it was a commissioned work. And he did it for the guild hall that housed an Amsterdam Civic Guard company of 
um, musketeers, essentially. And it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of Rembrandt within the history of Western art because he is really considered one of the foremost artists of the Dutch Baroque period, um, but so many other periods that come after. But he, even if he had never painted, he was also really well known for his prints and he was also a, a prolific teacher and educator as well. And his career was lasted nearly 40 years. He completed approximately 400 paintings, 400 paintings, a thousand drawings and 300 engravings. So he has a huge body of work and they don't, you know, these aren't quick necessarily. So he was really, really working for years and years and years and didn't really slow down ever in, in the span of 40 years. And these, there was a hierarchy to these different painting styles. Um, so I've just listed history painting of say classical or religious events, portraiture, such as a royal portrait that a com commissioned painter would do for someone in the monarchy, and group portraits, absolutely, as well. Um, and then we have genre scenes, landscapes, and still lives. Still lives, I think, are probably my favorite, um, but they were the lowest on the hierarchy. Still lives of the Dutch golden age period to clarify but Rembrandt's Night Watch is an example of a very specific type of painting exclusive to the northern Netherlands which the majority were commissioned in Amsterdam and the one of the reasons why Night Watch is so significant is because it shows the pride and civic duty of the civic guardsmen. And the primary purpose of these guardsmen was to serve as defenders of their cities, to protect their cities. And each company had its own guild hall. Um, they also had a shooting range where they could practice, train with whatever weapon was associated. So it might be uh, not necessarily all firearms, but at this period, a crossbow, a longbow, or a firearm. And these assembly halls were decorated, as I said, with group portraits. So this would have been part of the Amsterdam Guild Hall for those civic guardsmen. And it shows the most distinguished members the power an individuality of the city that they defended. So it becomes a little bit more about pride of geographic place and representation and power, representation of that power and of that individuality. Like, yes, Amsterdam, this is the city to defend. We are so proud to be defending the city and we are such a powerful group of guardsmen. Um, but interestingly, okay, about the title, because this title, this painting is really 
um, it is really famous. I'm not just saying that because I'm including it. And so you can assume that most of the work I'm showing you is pretty canonical and well known. But the night watch painting is actually not a night scene at all. It takes place during the day. But the title is not given by Rembrandt, the artist. It was actually not applied until the end of the 18th century. And the painting literally darkened because of the considerable accumulation of dirt and varnish. And that gave it this appearance that the event takes place at night. I included Vermeer's Girl with a Pearl Earring, a very famous Dutch Golden Age painting from the Baroque period. She's become known as the Mona Lisa of the North, the Northern Netherlands, Northern Europe. And it's partially because of the girl's curious expression. So there's also been an element of the painting having this mystery and ambiguity of what the emotion is. So I, that can also be an option for your reading response if you'd like to do a formal analysis of this painting and dive into what is the emotion of her expression. If it's clear, maybe it's not clear. And then I've also included a, so going back to France in the Baroque period, Jean-Baptiste Chardin saying grace from 1740. I also really love this painting. And the subject of this work is a humble everyday life setting of a modest middle class interior where a mother you can see is laying the table for a meal. She instructs the children to say grace before eating. And the entire composition that Chardon made, and he was really admired not for his approach, but his, his ability to manipulate the paint into this luminous and tranquil way. So that light coming on the faces of the mother and the children and the table and on the background behind them is very distinct and he was able to do this in paint uh, very 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 well and it was composed with great care the painting is showing this humble scene of a closely knit family but the element of care that he puts into the painting is resonant with the care within the family as well so there's i like this painting because um it is canonical. It is very much part of the art history discipline that um, I'm encouraging you all to critique. But at the same time, I just can't help but love these pieces. Um, I, I have not seen this work in person, but I do love it. So this is a bit of a you know, has those rich colors of the Baroque period, but it's toned down. It's not too extravagant. And you would see this in a middle-class household hung, hung on the ceiling to sort of inspire that family um, to see themselves in a work, which was 
more, you know, for lack of a better word, pretty revolutionary for the patrons, which normally were just the elite, um, aka the monarchs. So to continue with the elite, though, we have the Rococo period. The Rococo period, it's a very fun period. We have the reign of Louis XV in France, and Rococo, I point out Louis XV because it first appeared in France, then moved to Italy, and spread through Central Europe. And that was in 1750s and 60s, it starts to spread um, throughout Europe. And it's often thought of as the final expression of the Baroque period, so you'll also see it referred to as late Baroque. And some of the characteristics of this period, you'll see very playful forms, so asymmetry, not necessarily this perfect symmetrical, very Leonardo da Vinci-esque, um, you know, with that Renaissance perspective. You see that being played with a bit. Very ornamental, very um, extravagant still. Very theatrical, so you still have that drama but it has a very different tone, a very different message. And that message is normally nostalgia for the pleasantries of life. What is pleasurable? What makes one feel good and wistful? Um, so that's why we see a lot of cherubs, cupids, and playful, lots of romance, a lot of sex. Um, not too explicit, but... Um, these are all the things that are associated with the Rococo period. Um, it combines asymmetry, scrolling curves, yeah, pastel, and these sinuous forms. So again, they're not quite perfectly symmetrical. They're a bit, um, you'll, you'll notice the difference once we look at a work, but they're sinuous. They're a bit curved, flowing. And you see the pair of potpourri vases with lids, and it shows the sinuous forms really well. See the curved porcelain, this playful pastel color with the gold. And this is an interesting piece. So the Savs factory was a porcelain factory in 1756, it was founded, and um, Louis XV became eventually the principal shareholder for the factory, and then designated it as the Royal Porcelain Manufactory. So the factory thus came under the control of the royal administration and focused on manufacturing luxury porcelain, mainly for the royal family the court and the aristocracy to decorate their homes and have this be part of the ambiance of exorbitance and also what Rococo really embraces, which is um, pleasure and extravagance. And um, you can think of potpourri and the good smells from it, so titillating the senses to um, bringing in more than the visual but the playful in terms of playful with the senses as well. 
Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun, she was the ideal painter for Marie Antoinette. And Marie Antoinette, there's this painting of her from 1778 to 79, where she's dressed in the most extravagant dress you can imagine with this pastel silk. Um, her hair is very high up on her head. There's even a bust of um, Louis XVI, who was now the king at this time. And that kind of marks her position as the most powerful woman in Europe at this time. Um, but yeah, so Vigée Lebrun was the portrait painter for Marie Antoinette. She painted more than 30 portraits of the queen and often tried to display her in an idealized way. She, um, I know it's hard to believe by looking at this gown, but she did try to make her more approachable for viewers looking at this work so that they can see her in a positive light. And the full length portrait is significant. So I didn't, if you um, go back up to the Baroque style and look at this painting of Louis the 14th by Hyacinth Rigaud. And this is also a full length ruler portrait, which was kind of the requirement for showing this power. And Rigaud in this case made Louis Couture's look taller and these embellishments of the fleur-de-lis and the red shoe are symbols of the monarchy in the Baroque period. And likewise with Marie Antoinette, and we have the bust of Louis says, but we also have her extravagant pastel. You know, she's in this room sort of set up in this studio style, but it's all very extravagant. The velvet, the, the velvet um, kind of tablecloth, the velvet chair behind her with the gilded gold walls. So it's they're both extravagant. They're both taking things to the next level. But these full-length ruler portraits were really looked for. Like, they were expected in a way to show this representation of the power of the monarchy before the fall of the monarchy during the French Revolution, which comes next week. And actually, during the Revolution, side note, Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun had to flee during the French Revolution so that she was not beheaded. Um, and she did successfully flee, but during her time, she painted many, many portraits of Marie Antoinette, but over 600 in her, in her lifetime. And she continued to paint even um, after the, the fleeing from France. But she really adored Marie Antoinette. Um, really took a liking to her, um, and I'm sure was paid very well. Uh, she wasn't necessarily a court painter, but she was the person that Marie Antoinette would call upon when she wanted a portrait done. This sculpture by Etienne Maurice Falconet, the seated Cupid, this is very much the Rococo style. He was a painter, but also made 
um, sculptures such as this one. And subjects like Venus, Cupid, Shepherds, these were all very common themes. And in this case, Cupid is holding his finger to his lip as he pulls the arrow from his quiver, which engages the viewer and makes them an accomplice in Cupid's attack. So whoever it may be that is getting shot with the arrow to fall in love. And this, the monarchy at this point, so kind of back to Louis XV, and his mistress was Madame de Pompidou, and she was very much a woman that had embodied being beautiful, clever, talented, but also a patron of literature and art and an arbiter of good taste for that period, according to, you know, the elite um, embodiment of what good taste is. So she had this statue, this was made for her and was a gift from Louis XV. Moving to Boucher, this painting, Boucher is known for his idyllic and voluptuous painting and uses classical themes, decorative allegories, and pastoral landscapes or scenes. And this piece was hung in the princess's bedchamber of the Hotel de Soubise, which is in Paris and is still around. Very extravagant hotel. And is often, you can imagine, the gold frame hung from silk-covered walls. But the idyllic pastoral scene here is really an escapist fantasy, the pleasantries of life. The Rococo period, the audience here really is the elite, the monarchy, and they're not interested in living in the present. They're more interested in evoking nostalgia and uh, kind of living in this dream world for the simple mores and pleasantries of country life. Fragonard was a French Rococo painter who was a master at rendering surface and texture with these pastel colors. And he also used loosely brushed soft backgrounds that really made the foreground pop. and giving us, again, that playful, romantic, depicting the fullness and softness of the two figures who are these aristocratic lovers flirtatiously dancing across the stage that is the foreground of the painting. And you can see the young man in the painting is looking around anxiously to make sure no one can see him approach his lover, which is a very, very Rococo-esque theme with, we also have that statue of Cupid that adds this variety of other thematic versions of play and eroticism, um, like that little sculpture that we saw. So those are some examples of the Rococo period, but I also wanted to point out this designer and artist that I came across a couple semesters ago, her name is Tenny Adiola, and she has this brand called Slash by Tia. And I've included, I encourage you to click on the link and look at the show she had. She's had a number since, but um, she actually is a graduate from the new school. And she studied 
art history, but as a woman of color, she kind of didn't really see herself in the works. So she loved the kind of look of French aristocracy and loved how extravagant it was and the pastel and the beautiful textures and materials, but revolutionizes it in a way where she inserts herself in the picture um, and other women that look like her. And so she puts this really modern contemporary spin on the French aristocracy before the French Revolution comes along and annihilates any of that exuberance and um, extravagance. But I, I, um, I really love her work because it's adding a much more interesting layer to a very frivolous kind of vapid period. 